Please be seated, and good morning. Good to see you all. And again, you know, happy anniversary to Emmanuel Anglican. Um, and uh, five years, I can still remember five years ago, preaching uh, from the Gospel of Mark and uh, being here for the first time in the Kiva, and it was, it was uh, a crazy and exciting day, and I took three naps the next day and <laughs> ate lots of cheese, I remember that. Um, so <clears throat> on that note, um, oh, and by the way, happy anniversary, these sleek new black chairs um, provided by, maybe you'll be more likely to sit in them, I don't know. <laughs> Um, they're not orange anymore, so so there's that. We're we're still in our sermon series called "Becoming More Than Sex: Becoming Spiritual Mothers and Fathers," and this is uh, really an invitation to maturity in a lot of ways. But one of the maturity roadmaps that we're calling everyone to is just as it relates to our genders. And so this morning's topic is called "Becoming Men." Last week, Nicole uh, talked about becoming women and how looking at the archetype of Mary, uh, we can become, uh, women can become uh, like Jesus. And uh, so we're going to talk about becoming men this morning, and just a couple questions to get us started. If you're a male here, what kind of man do you hope to become? If you're a man, what, what, kind of a, what kind of a man do you hope to become? If you're a female, what do you hope to see in the men around you? What, what are you yearning for and hoping for as you relate with your brothers your uncles, your sons, your fathers, your husbands. Um, our society is very concerned right now about something called toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity is, is, is in the headlines, and it's a big concern for our society. I think this is shorthand for masculine strength at the expense of others. Masculine strength, whatever advantages or, or um, features that men have, using those at the expense of others. Maybe you've witnessed toxic masculinity in your own life. A man who interrupts his female coworker in a meeting to mansplain why her ideas won't work for the project. Or teammates who, uh, in the, uh, after the game, they, they brag about their sexual exploits and then dismiss it as locker room talk. Upperclassmen who bully and harass the underclassmen who are smaller than they are. Toxic masculinity. One researcher asked people in the United States about the, the attributes associated with masculinity. Like, what do you associate with like masculinity? And a few of the top items include winning, emotional control, meaning don't, not feeling things, violence, dominance, playboy, and power over women. We've witnessed how destructive men who have these traits and consider themselves masculine because of these traits, uh, that they can be so destructive for, for everything in society, for, for churches, for government, for families, and just society in general. Um, because of this, concern about toxic masculinity, some of us men are tempted to withhold our strength at the expense of others which is like the other side of the coin of toxic masculinity. For instance, a father who sits passively by while his wife takes on the major burden of parenting. A leader who withholds himself, withholds his strength from confronting a destructive person. 
a boyfriend who withholds commitment of marriage to his girlfriend or a single man who never pursues a relationship with a woman because he doesn't want to take the risk of being rejected. Uh, This can be just as destructive. Passive men can be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous. Uh, So, men, do you desire to express healthy masculinity? And women, do you desire to witness and experience and pray for healthy masculinity? Healthy masculinity, we might define as masculine strength for the benefit of others. Masculine strength used for the benefit of others, um, especially women and children. So, for instance, uh, this might look like this. The political leader who, who takes a hit in the polls for confronting racist behavior. Or the young father who stays up all night with his colicky young child. The entrepreneur who, who forgoes higher profit margins so that he can provide very generous maternity and paternity leave in his company. Or the prison warden who won't abide any abuse of the inmates, but insists on providing enrichment opportunities for them. Men express healthy masculinity in a life of courage and leadership and sacrifice. They channel their strength, whatever advantages they have, to provide and protect those who need it. I think a lot of us yearn for men to do this, yearn for men to take the leadership in sacrificing their strength for the benefit of others. Now, this is very admirable. We can all applaud, yes, healthy masculinity, yay, but it's, it's difficult. It's a challenge. It won't happen automatically. So how can toxic masculinity, especially the toxic masculinity that we've learned from family of origin or from society, how can that become unlearned so that we can take on, internalize, and act out healthy masculinity from the inside out? Because you know what? Cultural stereotypes are not going to do it. Cultural stereotypes are not going to teach us to become healthy men. Um, they tend to like, make it worse. But you know, trying hard and, and like pushing yourself and, and like trying to psych yourself up to be a good man doesn't work either. That just leaves us tired. That just leaves us frustrated. So how do we train for healthy masculinity? What's the process of going from toxic to healthy? Um, especially when we're on the spot. You know what I mean when I say on the spot? When our masculinity is tested and something either healthy is going to come out of us or something toxic is going to come out of us. How do we train off the spot so that when we're on the spot, we have become healthy men and so that the spirit of God flows through us? And that's why I love so much the gospel lesson this morning that we have. In it, we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was condemned and crucified to take away our sins. And you know, the biographer Matthew, he presents Jesus preparing himself before he's on the spot of the cross, before he's on the spot of his trial, he's preparing off the spot in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what this does is prepares him to demonstrate courage, to demonstrate sacrifice, to demonstrate everything we yearn for in men, which is laying his life down for the sake of his bride, for the sake of all who need it. Um, He is ready before the chief priests. He is ready when the mob comes to get him. He's ready when people mock him on the cross. He is ready and resolute and courageous and prepared but he gets ready in the Garden of Gethsemane. So how did he train? 
Um, and how can we train like he did? We're going to look at three pathways uh, that Jesus took to train for healthy masculinity. And the first pathway may surprise you uh, in this text. I invite you to turn to Matthew 26 as we look here. The first pathway, the first way of training for Jesus is, um, is ownership of his emotions. Ownership of his emotions. Jesus leaves most of his disciples outside the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes the top three that he's really investing in, uh, in with him. It's his inner circle. He took them on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. He's taking them into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as soon as he crosses the threshold of this garden, uh, the painful emotions begin to rise up within him and come to the surface. Look with me at Matthew 26, verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus is under incredible emotional stress here. Uh, the verbs sorrowful and troubled of verse 37 are like a one-two punch. It's like depression and anxiety. It's like sadness and fear in their most intense forms. And they're just pummeling Jesus's insides. Sorrowful and troubled, sorrowful and troubled. And he's just like enduring this. Now, this is where our own cultural stereotypes of manhood depart from our picture of Jesus is here. Jesus' own manhood here is different because culture encourages men to deny their emotions, deny their emotions, push them down. Culture says, man up, chin up, keep a stiff upper lip, stop crying, be strong, don't admit weakness. And here's what Jesus says in verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So Jesus here is is owning the sorrow and the anguish. He feels them, he names them, and he processes them with his community. Jesus does not limit his emotional range. He feels the sorrow and he expresses the sorrow. And he asks for help. Stay with me. Pray with me. Hey, I need your companionship right now. Hey, I need you to be my friends right now. I need you to be present with me as I feel sorrowful and anguished. Um, And as we'll see, he's going to bring this sorrow and anguish into his prayer life too. So how does ownership of his emotions prepare Jesus for personal sacrifice? How is this actually training him for masculinity? B.B. Warfield uh, Uh, a late New Testament scholar, did a comprehensive study of the emotional life of Jesus. He studied all four biographies of Jesus, and he wrote a book called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And do you know what the number one emotion that he noted of Jesus was? The top emotion, compassion, compassion. Compassion for the helpless and harassed who were like sheep without a shepherd, he would see them and he would feel this gut-level empathy for the suffering that they were enduring. Compassion for the widow whose son died, just gutted for her. 
Compassion for the people mocking him on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They, they don't even know what they're doing. Now, where did that compassion come from? Compassion comes from a soul with an emotional range. If you shut down your grief, you will shut down your compassion. If you shut down your anger, you will shut down your joy. If you shut down your fear, you will shut down your valor. If you shut down your pain, you will shut down intimacy. So manly emotions like courage and compassion are forged in the furnace of messy emotions like sadness and anxiety. It doesn't mean that we indulge these emotions. We invite the Holy Spirit to transform us as we feel them and process them in a healthy way. <clears throat> One author um, likens emotional ownership like this. He says, you know, emotions are like the kids in the car on the way to vacation. Okay, so on the one hand, <clears throat> you don't let the kids drive the car. On the, other can uh, on the other hand, you don't just stuff them in the trunk. <laughs> okay? You have to attend to their needs and listen to them and interact meaningfully with them because they're your kids and they're your emotions and they're in your car. <clears throat> so process them in a healthy way. Take ownership of them. Jesus owned his emotions and he brought them to God and his community. And this set him up for wholehearted courage in the face of injustice and torture. This set him up for wholehearted compassion for the thief on the cross to whom he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And it set him up for resoluteness to make his personal sacrifice, to lay his life down. What courage for Jesus to just lay on the cross and let them drive the stakes through. What courage it took him to face down hell and Satan and evil as it collected around him to destroy him and tear him apart from the inside out. I'm so glad he went there for us. In a different letter of the scriptures, uh, a pastor says this. In the days of his flesh, meaning in his earthly life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus, because he entered into a life of uh, loud cries and tears, was able to save us from death and became our compassionate high priest. And he still prays for us. He still has compassion for us. The emotional life of our Lord continues. He's not a stoic high priest. He has gut level, compassion, and he has joy, and he has concern, and he walks with us through our own ownership of our own emotions. And it's available to anyone who asks for it today. The strongest men I know have taken Jesus up on his compassion. The strongest men I know invite Jesus into their messy emotions and as a result become more courageous and resolute and compassionate as a result. They name their emotions, feel their emotions in the presence of Christ and the presence of Christ's ambassadors instead of stuffing it into their bodies and stuffing it into their subconscious and stuffing it into their systems. Those will come out later uh, and not under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
So men, here are some questions to get you started in owning your own emotions. These are questions that help me. What's bugging you? Is anything bugging you? You know what? Be honest about that. Maybe even take a journal out or you process with a safe friend. What's bugging you? Um, Number two, who has betrayed you? Who's betrayed you? Uh, What are you angry about, about those betrayals? Maybe just start to talk about that with the Lord and and, and with someone who's, maybe someone who's uh, mentoring you or, or a friend in your life. Number three, what are you concerned about? What, what outcomes are you tempted to try to control? Things that are not right in your life and, and you're feeling anxiety about it. Jesus is ready to hear about your anguish. He's ready to hear about your sadness and your anger. And he's ready then to pour into you and into us his courage and strength. And along the way, um, he's just gonna give you healthy masculinity by grace, okay? This is a major component to healthy masculinity. And our society is yearning for it. So how did Jesus prepare for healthy and sacrificial masculinity? He owned his emotions, ownership of his emotions. Number two is a tough one, submission of his will. Submission of his will. I don't know of any man who is a healthy man who has not at some point actively submitted his will uh, and did something he didn't want to do or didn't do something he did want to do. The cultural message to men is this, be your own man, answer to no one, and take what you want. Uh, Or in the words of a song, for what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. His way, Frank Sinatra's way, the one who's saying that, included four marriages, six affairs that we know about, two abortions, alcoholism, workaholism, violent outbursts, and involvement with organized crime. Uh, His way was not good for him or others around him, especially the women and the children. Jesus went a different way, and his way was laid out by the Father. Uh, When Jesus became a man, he he didn't throw aside his role of being a son. Show um, me a man who has stopped being a son, and I will show you a man who is unhealthy and whose strength is not under control or for the sake of others. The author of Hebrews says this, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Um, So his father's will for him was to become a high priest and to go through the cross on the way to becoming a high priest. That was his father's will for him. And Jesus said yes to that. Verse 39 of our text here, Matthew 26, 39. Um, Let's see Jesus wrestling with this will that his father had for him. Going a little farther, 
he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So a hellish, bloody path laid bare before Jesus, and he could see it, and he he expressed his heart to the Father. He said, I would like there to be another way than to drink this cup. I would like there to be another way than this cup of suffering. And, And Jesus, being the brilliant human being that he was, probably had a great idea, like, Father, I have another way, you know, Maybe it, was a, maybe it involved the, um, the legions of angels that he refers to later in the text. Like maybe there was a really great way that did not involve the cross. There could have been. And he's wrestling in prayer with the Father about this. The Father wants the cross. Jesus does not want the cross. Um, so in prayer, he learns that there's a difference of will. And with great courage, he submits himself to, to his Father. And he says yes to this. The father says, no, I want you to go to the cross. And Jesus like, that's not what I wanted. But your will will become my will now. And because he said yes to that, and because he bent his will to godly authority, the great courage it took for him to do that, he was able to express healthy masculinity and spend his strength for others. Being under godly authority is fundamental to healthy, Christ-like masculinity. If you cannot submit yourself to a spiritual father as unto the Lord, um, you have no business exercising spiritual authority in the lives of others. You'll be a danger to yourself if you are exercising masculine authority and you are not under healthy masculine authority. We all need someone who can call us out on our sin. Um, we all need someone who can guide us and protect us with a rod and a staff, not just pastors, but others, other, other disciples of Jesus that we surround ourselves with and learn from. We need to be a son before we can grow into being a man. If you skip the process of being a son or you cast it aside, your manhood will be stunted and it will be unhealthy. Look again at verse 39, okay? And and picture this. Jesus is falling on his face before his father. And 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 he's wrestling with his father, but he's also submitting to his father. He's submitting to the father before he submits his life. There's just no way around this process. Um, I've recently been researching the life of my great-grandfather, whose name was Benjamin Guthrie Fay, and he became a missionary to South America uh, in the early 1900s. He, he got on a ship and, and sailed from, from the United States to, uh, to Paraguay and then later to Argentina. And on the ship, um, he met a beautiful young woman named Annie Mason, who was also going to be a missionary. And it was like, well... <laughs> Um, and so he asked, um, by the time the ship had landed, it was like, yeah, this is happening. Um, so he asked the mission board for permission to marry Annie Mason. And the mission board said, you need to wait two years. You need to wait two years. You need to acclimate to the culture. 
We need to know that both of you are truly called to the mission field. We need to make sure that your relationship is healthy. And, I, and now I'm filling in the blanks for why they said two years. Um, like surely they had good reasons for great grandpa to wait. Um, but um, I imagine that for him to say yes to that was, was tough. Like maybe he had to have a Gethsemane moment where he's wrestling with this. Like I love this woman and we're both called to the same thing. And like my will is to get married now. But the mission board's will is for us to wait two years and like wrestling with this. But he said yes. And he bent his will. And they waited two years and then they made up for it by having six kids. (laughs) Um, But then I, you know, I read about the rest of his life and like he spent the rest of his life until he had Parkinson's as a missionary. And he planted churches and he raised up leaders, and he laid his life down um, for like 50 years. And you know what? You can't do that unless you're consistently saying, thy will be done. You have to die to your will your whole life. Like you're always laying aside what you want for what you're being asked to do. And it allowed him to pour his life out as a father, husband, missionary, and farmer. So you know you truly submitted your will when you submitted your will when your will is crossed. When your will is crossed, that's when you know that there's submission involved. And then after it's crossed, you say yes. And after some wrestling, you bend your will. So how did Jesus prepare himself for healthy masculine sacrifice? Ownership of his emotions submission of his will, and then finally, formation of his habits. Formation of his habits. You know, all men undergo a formation of habits. Um, and, you know, you could call this any number of things. You could call this spiritual formation. Um, but in any case, these habits shape our character, don't they? Uh, so overwork is a spiritual formation. Unceasing toil with no Sabbath rest shapes our souls to be exhausted and afraid of silence. That's the kind of man that you will become if you consistently overwork. Netflix autoplay is a spiritual formation. Um, It cuts a groove of passivity into our bodies, one show at a time. Cable news and Twitter scrolling is a spiritual formation. Uh, It can create an appetite for clever insults and hot takes. We're just, we can't wait for the next takedown. Now, consider your daily and weekly patterns. This is, again, off the spot. When no one's looking, what habits are being formed and what character is being formed by those habits? How is it shaping us? What kind of a man, a person, are we slowly becoming? Um, I'm very inspired by Jesus's spiritual formation because it prepared him for personal sacrifice. Okay, again, when he's put on the spot, when everyone's watching, Um, by the chief priest, by Pilate, by the mocking crowds, he's ready. He's ready. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't crack. Um, uh, He goes, he makes it to the cross, which was his goal. And um, so how did he get ready? It's what happened off the spot in Gethsemane, verse 20, verse, sorry, Matthew 26, verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so You could not watch with me one hour. You couldn't even stick with this formation for one hour. Um, Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What is he calling his disciples to? You know, he's, he's saying, you know, look, you, your spirit you might be um, really excited about what's ahead here. And you might really wanna be a good man in this moment. I know you wanna be a good man in this moment. Your spirit is willing, but it hasn't been operationalized into your body yet, okay? There's a watch and pray process that he's calling Peter into so that he can be ready to lay his life down. If Peter wasn't ready, Jesus was getting ready. Uh, so um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We could translate it this way, put it in these words. Hey, you've got some great ideas right alongside bad habits. You've got, great, you've got a great vision, but you've got bad habits. You sincerely intend to follow me into personal sacrifice, but the preparation for that sacrifice begins now in the hidden places. Here's what it looks like for Jesus to watch and pray. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It's the second time, and then there's gonna be a third time. So for Jesus to watch and pray meant to apply old prayers to current challenges. Applying old prayers to current challenges. Can you hear the echoes of the Lord's prayer in his words? My Father, our Father, not my will be done, your will be done. Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is, is maybe he's visualizing, maybe he's picturing the cup that he's going to drink, the jeering crowds, the uh, condemning courtroom, being whipped, being nailed to the cross, facing down evil, taking on the sins of the world. And as he pictures that, he's praying, thy will be done. My Father, thy will be done. And Jesus will soon be on the spot, and he'll be ready. Um, he's aligning his mind, body, and soul for obedience with the help of the Spirit. He takes a break to go get his disciples, um, and then he found them sleeping. Their eyes are heavy. So verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. It's a, again, he's taking the same prayer, and he's just like cutting a groove into his soul, into his body, into his imagination, and like, let's work the Lord's prayer deep in the bones while we have an opportunity. This is not unlike training for a marathon, which I know is happening today, and everyone's so special out there. Um, <clears throat> it's not enough to say, I sincerely want to run a marathon, now, maybe if you're 22 years old and you have great, you know, great, great genetics, um, maybe it is enough for you. It won't always be enough for you, homeboy. Um, <laughs> but <clears throat> it's not enough to say, I sincerely want to run a marathon with all my heart. Well, you know what? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you need to train the flesh. You must transform that desire and that vision into practices that will reshape your body and mind so that you are marathon ready. When everyone else is sleeping, for instance, in August or, or doing something else, you must get up and run 10 miles. Now, over time, training, this training is going to give you freedom to run 26.2 miles and get that special little sticker on the back of your car. <laughs> um, so Jesus did this. He trained off the spot 
and this defined his manhood on the spot. He put in the work. He did the training. So let's apply this to our lives. Let's say, for instance, that you want to grow into godly manhood, and you want to get free of, let's say, pornography use. And I'm not saying that to pick on anybody. I'm just using that as an example. Let's say you want to grow up into manhood and be free of pornography. It's not enough to just say, I sincerely want to be free of pornography use or sexual addiction. You've got to transform that desire into practices that are going to reshape your body and your soul so that you are a master over your sexual drive. Um, So one of the ways that a lot of men have found freedom in this is by taking on the practice of fasting from food once a week. They they fast from um, one, two, three meals a week, um, and, and, and they're praying the Lord's Prayer. They're praying, thy will be done. And, and uh, over time, what, what does this do? This gives them greater mastery over their physical urges and appetites. And they, get, they gain a sense of, of self-control over their bodies, which is how God intends it. If you combine that fasting with prayers of submission to Jesus, you'll have more intimacy and power in the Holy Spirit. If you combine those two practices with a third practice of joining in a community of other men, who can listen, support, share your struggles, be like, yes, this is hard, isn't it? And, and, and cheer you on and pray for you. Man, that's a, that's a third strand there in the practices that you're doing. Um, and so you've got fasting, you've got prayer, you've got community. Um, the Lord can work through that and his grace can flow through those practices so that over time you become free. You become a man who's a master over your body and who's free of sexual addiction. So Jesus, you know, um, he went to Gethsemane to train, and he became a master of his, of his emotions. He owned his emotions. He submitted his will, and he formed his habits. And, um, you know, after Gethsemane, he really shines. He doesn't react. You know who does react? Two people. I'll tell you about them briefly. You, you, can, you can flip over. I'll refer briefly. You can flip over to, to verses... Um, 47 through 56. And who do we see reacting? Who do we see exploding? Two people, Judas and Peter. Now, Judas shows up with the brute squad. Judas shows up with men with clubs and swords and coming to arrest Jesus, and he's a double-tongued guy. And so he's working both sides, and he's been lying, and he's been betraying. Um, in order to cover up, what is he covering up? Who knows? Fear, shame, well, I don't know what it is. But here he shows up and he kisses Jesus um, and he's a total pretender and he's a total faker. And who else reacts to the situation? Well, well, Peter takes his sword. Another gospel tells us that it's Peter who chops the ear off of the sword. And who knows what that's overcompensating for? But this is such a temptation for men to overcompensate when they feel small isn't it? And then, you know, after, after Jesus is like submitting himself to the arrest, what happens at the very, so look at that last verse there. What happens to the disciples? They do what so many men do. They run away. They run away. They're not ready, okay? The only thing they're ready for is overreacting or underreacting. Now listen, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? In the end, like when all is said and done, what happens to these two men who are overreacting and underreacting 
in toxic masculinity. The only difference between Judas and Peter in the end is that Peter had the humility to have a conversation with Jesus on the other end of it. Judas said, I did it my way. And when it didn't go his way, he took his own life. And he removed himself from the situation. He was too proud. He was too proud for grace. He was too proud for grace. Peter endured the fire of Jesus's gentle grace on that beach when he said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And what came out of Peter in that moment? Sorrow. The same thing that Jesus felt in Gethsemane. So, I mean, Jesus brought up the sorrow, and I'm sure it was so painful. But what do you see happening in Peter over the course of his life? You see someone who is a classic, a classic like ripe pickings for toxic masculinity. You know, he's this brash guy, you know. But what Jesus does is he transforms his character so that, so that he forges this strong and gentle shepherd and leader who became a force of Jesus, who, who himself went to the cross, as um, some early church stories tell us. You read First Peter, this is a different guy than the one chopping the ear off of the soldier in Matthew 26. Peter was not too proud for grace. All of us men have fallen short of healthy masculinity, every last one of us, either by underdoing it or overdoing it, some combination, we've all failed to train. Jesus says, come to me, let me give you grace, let me forgive you, and let me give you the easy yoke of healthy masculinity in my name and with my spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.